Welcome to Finding Home with Scott Harris, where we take a fresh look at what home means. People are drawn to New York to make big visions into reality, and I've guided hundreds of them to find homes that support these dreams. Each episode is dedicated to their stories. I'm Scott Harris, your host. Welcome back to Finding Home with me, Scott Harris. This week, I had the opportunity to meet with and interview Burt Weisbord, who has been a producer of feature films, a screenwriter, and most recently has become quite the novelist. He's got a number of books that have been out and winning awards, including In Velvet, Danger in Plain Sight, and the Corey Logan Trilogy, which recently won Global Book Award for Suspense. Bert has built each chapter of his life on the last, and I find him incredibly fascinating. He's developed screenplays with Robert Redford and Goldie Hawn and Sally Field, even now Pacino. He's a voting member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and has more stories than you can shake a stick at. So without further ado, I bring you my interview with Bert Weisbord. Well, I'd like to welcome to the Finding Home podcast, Bert Weisbord. Hey, Bert, how you doing? Good. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's a pleasure. I've known Bert for a number of years. Bert is uh, an author. He's been a, a film producer. He's been a num- worn a number of hats over the years. But today, you know, we're going to have a wide ranging conversation. I think probably talk a lot about the idea of creation, what it means to, to, uh, to create characters. And, um, Bert, I just want to, I want to try to start at the beginning and, and get us to where you are today. If that's all right with you, I thought we'd talk about you as a, as a budding, uh, Hollywood producer, kick things off. Well, that's so Bert, you, you, you ended up going from Chicago, I guess, to Hollywood. Can you talk a little bit about that journey of how you got from one place to the other? I guess there's really two steps to it. The first one is that in those days, you know, there was a lot of tax benefits of investing in certain kinds of movies. And the very first thing I ever did is before I went to Hollywood is I raised, I was in graduate school in business, and I raised a very small amount of money, including from one of my professors, to, uh, and I became the producer of a film that a rabbi was making in Mendocino. And (laughs) it was called uh, The Deadly Veil, and my Brit and... uh, well, it had some interesting Cameron Mitchell, some old actors in it. And it was kind of interesting and it was a good experience. And it convinced me that this is what I wanted to do. And it was actually released. And um, you can still see it from time to time. It's a little bit to my embarrassment. And uh, then I decided that I wanted to go do feature films uh, in Hollywood. And I didn't know anybody. And I knew something about finance and I did some research and I figured out that you could finance a high budget screenplay in those days for about, oh golly, uh, $9,600. So I went out and I went to all these writers that I admired. And I, you know, it was kind of gutsy because, uh, you know, I didn't really know how bold I was being but I went to these people and I said listen I'd like to develop a screenplay for you I won't pay you what you normally would make for a studio but I will give you things that the studio won't give you I'll guarantee you they have the first rewrites I'll make you uh, a producer I mean I'm oversimplifying but it was a variety of things and I was very surprised to find that there's some really great writers who were really interested in this. The first of whom was Andy Lewis, who'd just written Clute and been nominated for an Oscar. Um, And I went on to write 
right to work with Andy on four screenplays. Uh, and it just kept snowballing. I, I, I went to Freddie Raphael, who had written uh, Darling and Two for the Road and Far From the Maddening Crowd. And I'll never forget that, that trip. I was going to the Cannes Film Festival. In fact, with that first film, The Deadly Veil, that I had made. And I had a project with Marty Scorsese. Uh, who had just made Taxi Driver. And Marty and I were gone, wanted to do Haunted Summer, which was the summer that uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And uh, we went to London. I was just a kid. I wasn't even 30 yet. We went to London and met with all these famous writers, including Freddie Raphael, at the Dorchester. And... We decided we made a deal with Freddie to write it, and he eventually did. And Marty went on to win with Taxi Driver that summer. And so it was a very exciting sort of introduction for me. And it just kept moving on. I went and made a deal with Alvin Sargent, who had written Ordinary People, and Julia, with Joe Esterhaus, who wrote Basic Instinct with... Uh, Golly, uh, Stuart Stern, who wrote Rebel Without a Cause, Ugly American. I mean, it, all of these interesting writers would come back to me uh, to do it again. And I'm not, I couldn't quite figure that out. And after a while, it dawned on me that I had, you know, I never had an image in my mind that I could write, but I was doing well with developing stories and characters with very experienced writers. I even, you know, I worked too with Ross McDonald on his first screenplay. And he is the mystery writer of the Lou Archer series. And eventually, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, I made a few movies. I, I developed screenplays for actors and actresses. Um, and I was actually quite lucky with being able to develop screenplays with actresses like Lily Tomlin and uh, Goldman and Ellie Field. And, um, I had one project that Freddie Raphael had written with Al Pacino and Diane Keaton. And what I began to understand is that particularly women, actresses, were interested in developing screenplays with me because I was very character-driven. And this was a time when, you know, the, there weren't a lot of great parts being written for women particularly. And uh, I went on to decide that um, I really wanted to write. And the decision for me was, do I want to write novels or do I want to direct movies? And again, I'm jumping ahead, but being a film producer was very satisfying at the beginning, but eventually I wanted to have more say in what the movies ended up being. And I was able to develop the screenplays and I was able to choose the directors. And by and large, we chose very good directors. So there's no criticism about them. But the fact of the matter is that movies are a director's medium, at least then they were. And um, I guess, unless you're a, producer like Steven Spielberg or, you know, someone who has had so many successes that you can sort of do whatever you want. But um, I found that, you know, if I were to become a director and I thought about it very carefully, I would really not be able to spend the time I wanted with my young children. And I had three young children at that time. And you know, if you're a director, you're gone often six, seven months a year on location, all the things that go into that. And I decided to write, and I've never regretted that decision. And uh, the first screenplay that I wrote a screenplay first um, about a woman who was a uh, fisherwoman in Alaska. And it was called Corey Logan. And it went on to become my first book, Inside Passage. And Inside Passage was the first in a trilogy, all of which featured Corey Logan. So uh, it really 
blossom for me. And I'm now writing my sixth book. Well, let's, if we could, Bert, I want to back up a little when we were, you were talking about working with these writers in the early days, was the creative process that you, you would hire them and, and actually like, were you working alongside them to develop the screenplay? I mean, what did that look like? Well, that's a good question. In most cases, uh, I was working alongside them, and we would meet. Oftentimes, what well, with some writers like Stuart Stern, it was like three times a week. Others, it was once or twice a week. And they would, you know, we would sort of work out the stories and the characters. Then they would do some writing, and then I would read it and come back, and we'd talk about it. And then we'd do it again and again. And uh, it was a very, it was a wonderful experience for me, but the writers apparently appreciated it because they found that the, the writing was getting better. And you, you talked about going from business school to, you know, to what is effective, like a very creative process. I, I sort of help me illuminate me a little bit. I've found business school can be a very conformist kind of a, of a filter and you were going into a business that I don't know, did it help? Did it help or did it, did it, what did it do coming right out of that business school mentality to go right into Hollywood? Well, you know, it really, it was like separate worlds. And um, I went back to work in financial markets when I started to write, just because I wanted to make more money than I could make as a novelist. But most of the time that I was working with screenwriters in Hollywood, uh, the business school stuff really did not play a role. It was really, it's a different part of your mind. I mean, it's, you know, a uh, different part of your brain. And uh, I enjoyed it. And I often wish that I could write as well as I can do finance, but uh, it's just a different set of skills. And, and this is... What what year is this? Oh golly! Um, let me see. I first came to uh, nineteen. So I, I'm coming off of this. Uh, I just read the novel version of uh, Tarantino's book. You know, that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that he had written. He yeah. wrote a novel version of it. And so he talks about. So you were in L.A. during you know late seventies. I mean, what was that? And you sort of rode that for a decade. So what was L.A. like during that time? It was a great time. I mean, this was really what people often call the golden years of Hollywood, uh, where there were directors like Marty Scorsese, uh, like Steven Spielberg, who is not yet a, you know, a phenomenon, uh, who were given a lot of leeway to do the kind of films they wanted to do. So it was very exciting. Uh, and, I, you know, there was a lot of wonderful work going on. Now that changed by the time I left, which was in the 80s, uh, late 80s. I think that, well, you know, a lot of things had changed and a lot of owners had asserted themselves in different ways. But I will never forget the experience I had just talking with directors and having the freedom to develop the screenplays in the way and do the movies in the way we wanted to do them. Was it that the the blockbuster kind of got bigger and bigger, and so there was just too much money riding on every on every production? Or there's a lot of theories about that. A lot of people talk about uh, Star Wars. And what they say about Star Wars is that's the first movie where, you know, kids went to see it three, four or five times so that suddenly you would have three times as many people seeing a movie as you'd ever seen. And then you'd have all the toys and the other things that went with the movie. And so the money that was being made was incredible. And it was not conducive to sort of artistic, you know, more, you know, well, I was just going to say uh, 
often the directors that were interested in more in things that weren't so popular. Um, they were really looking for bestsellers. And, you know, eventually that evolved into a lot of the comic book movies and, you know, Batman and that kind of stuff. Right. It's, and you could almost, you know, we'll, we'll kind of move back into the writing, you know, your early writing. But if you kind of fast forward from that time, let's say when you left Hollywood to today, where you have this ridiculous abundance of content, where there seems to be more room now than ever for, I mean, I don't want to say it's not popular, but I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree that some of the movie making today has taken on a bit more, there's a lot more room for artistic uh, production that may be on slightly smaller budgets. I, I mean, have you, you're part of the Academy, right? I mean, you're, you're one, you get to see everything that's coming out. You know, what's your view on, on well, movie making now? I think you're part right. I think that, yes, there are a lot of terrific movies being made now, but I think most of the best work, I mean, there's a lot more content. Most of the best work, though, is being done in these long-form television, where you have the ability to, and a lot of your most talented writers and directors have moved into that because, you know, you can do a... a 15-hour movie, basically. And you have a lot more room to uh, explore and do character stuff and a lot of very exciting work going on. But that doesn't... I mean, if you look at some of the films from last year, I mean, like, I don't know if you saw The Land, the um, movie uh, that... What's her name? She was married to Sean Penn. Um, uh, she directed it and starred in it. It was wonderful. It was Robin Wright. That's it. That's mm -hmm. it. And I highly recommend it. And it's a good example of the kind of movie that I don't think you could have gotten made in 1990s. So you you touched on it and we kind of moved away from it, but you we started talking about kind of the roles of like complex roles of women or maybe strong women that you started to feel like, um, well, you, you, you were writing yourself, you know, were there any um, particular films or anything that, that, ins that you saw that said, you know, there's that inspired you towards that? Well, well, Clute was a good example. I don't know if you even remember that movie, but that's a movie where Jane Fonda plays a call girl. And it's a really uh, remarkable characterization, way ahead of its time. And uh, that really influenced me. And, and so walk me, walk me through. You, you left L.A. at some point and sort of migrated. Did you go straight to the Pacific Northwest? Was that where you're next? Uh... Seattle. We moved, you know, and then a lot of that had to do with, it was really two things. It was my decision that I was not going to produce movies and that I was going to write, but also where we wanted a, our kids to grow up. I mean, Hollywood is a tough place to raise young children. Uh, I will always remember uh, how one of my kids came back from their school and they complained to me why I couldn't read as well as the woman who read their story read at school. Of course, that was Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was in the classroom kind of her child, her child was there. And so she got to <laughs> oops. Yeah. No, but I mean, I mean, that's just a funny story, but there is a, a whole level of, um, movie stuff that, you know, you, you, once your kid for the first time goes to a party that costs $10,000, you sort of want to think again, you know? Right. You're, you're wondering, how do I keep I, Look, I, I'm a, a father of three in New York city. So I'm always thinking about some flavor of what you're, you're talking about. How do you keep your kids grounded amidst um, a great deal of wealth and, 
just, you know, how do you keep the world from distorting past something that makes sense outside of a bubble, right? Yeah. And, you know, there, there's nothing. I'm not fine. We knew one friend of our son Ben's, who, you know, uh, who uh, he had toy day once a week. And his father was a well-known agent. But, I mean, he would spend thousands of dollars for toys every Monday. I mean, you know, and it's like you don't want your kids to be uh, exposed to that in a way that they feel like they should be having it. Um, we used to get complaints when we, you know, the kids lost tooth and we gave them, you know, a quarter. And they talk about their friend that got a $50 bill. You know, it's like it's just a different world. Right. There's a sense of, of scale that seemed to be a little bit off. Um, so I wanted, as you're thinking about, let, let's, you know, kind of in the shift from, say, screenwriting into, in, into writing novels, um, was, the, was it that the limitation of the the screenplay was just pulling at you and you were hoping to develop these characters with say you know where you could have much more in the way of interior dialogue and that kind of thing or you know what was the other than not wanting to make movies you know it's did you just say i'm not going to even write because you could have written screenplays too and i not, did i did in fact so was it was that the first the next step that yeah eventually first, got first thing i did when i decided not to when I decided to write is I wrote a screenplay. I wrote three screenplays and I made some deals on them. They never got made, but they were pretty well received and they were good experiences for me. And it's a good uh, way to learn about writing because it's a very, it's a discipline, you know, because you can't go, and as you say, you can't go inside people's heads. You know, you, you, you have to use different kinds of action to express certain feelings. And um, I learned a lot from it, but it's also, it's got time constraints, you know, you got 110 pages say, and you know, you've got a, a couple of hours and it's completely different than writing a novel where there are no constraints and you can go as interior as you want to be for as long as you want to be. And it's a different kind of phenomenon. And I found that I was very interested in complexity, uh, character complexity, and there's just no comparison of what you could do in a screenplay. Now, I'm not saying that there haven't been great like Clute movies where, you know, screenplays become great but uh, a lot of times it's the director and the actress or the actor, and it's different than in a book where the writer really has control of everything. Yeah, it, it does seem like control becomes, so the, the, the big distinction is, you know, who, who ends up playing that character and are they delivering at the level of complexity that, that you need them to, to really express the, the character. I mean, how, how often are you battling it, so to speak with, you know, with uh, the movie, whoever's, whoever's helping to fund the movie over who gets the particular role and you just don't, how often does that happen? Or had, more, uh, more often than, than not. I mean, you know, I'll never forget the first, uh, a well-known producer gave me a little bit of advice when I started writing uh, and I was writing a screenplay. He said, get a hat. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, so you can cover your head or your face after the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, most writers are disappointed in the films that get made from their screenplays. I mean, there are sometimes there's good reasons. Sometimes there's, you know, they're, they're not fair, but they're generally not exactly what they wrote. And, you know, you, you talked about, you know, at the time that writers had like a scale that you could really bring on almost, you know, the, the most, the most talented people out there at a certain scale were right. Were, was there really a hierarchy in terms of, you know, as you decided to start writing screenplays yourself, um, was, was there some sense that writers were not as important as say that, you know, 
I mean, I know you're saying the directors themselves are kind of the, you know, really where the where the magic is made, so to speak. But were writers just kind of thrown away on on some level? Well, the writers were at the bottom of the totem pole uh, in Hollywood at the beginning, certainly. I mean, that's changed, and some writers become very successful. And but you know, the, the, the writers began to be paid a lot, and that became sort of a rationalization for being badly treated when the movies are made. And that's not healthy, you know? So a writer gets paid $250,000 to write a screenplay. It doesn't feel any better that they made 250. I mean, it may feel a little better, but it isn't, you know, if they mess up the movie, you know? And there has always been this idea that the writers are replaceable and you will just get time. And again, I've had experiences with also not just directors, but with famous actors who want to take a writer off to put on a writer that they like better. And sometimes that's with good reason, but most of the time it's so they can have more control over what their part is. And that's a very unhealthy process. It is very central to uh, Hollywood, especially when you have big directors and big stars. Bert, if you could, I, I, I wanted to talk about this idea. You know, it sounds like one of the, re the reasons why writers really engaged with you is because you gave them so much freedom or you allowed them to maintain creative control to a degree. But I I'm wondering, you know, if you had a, a different vision in your collaboration with them, um, you know, if you could tell any stories of, I guess, when things went off the rails, you know, when you, when the collaboration just didn't come together, where a writer really had an idea of, of the, of the screenplay going in a certain direction. You said, well, actually, can we try to go this way? You felt like that might've made a better story in the end and it wasn't well received. Uh, I didn't have that experience. I never had that experience with a writer that I worked with. Um, or we didn't start working on the script. We always had to agree on what we were doing before we started. And we always worked it out. And a lot of dis disagreements along the way, a lot of things. That, but the whole process was, you know, you got to work out something that works for both of us. And in a way you hope that it'll be better than if you were just doing it yourself. And that's the way it turned out. Where I did have problems was with actors and actresses and directors. And I had a very famous actor want to fire a very famous screenplay writer halfway through when they'd already turned in half the script and it had been read and liked and he wanted to put on another writer because he just won an Oscar and he was very powerful. And, and I just said no. And that's what I felt I had to do. And I got killed for it. I mean, I, I you know, the, the head of the studio called me, the head of the agency called me, you know, who do you think you are? Da, 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 da. I mean, but that's what you have to do if you're going to def defend writers. And oftentimes it means that the script doesn't get made. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, some of this is informed ever so slightly by some of the stories that recently there's been some, uh, some shows where, they talk about really the the screen the screenplay already having been written and then kind of going through the process you describe as opposed to you are coming in with a writer and saying let's create this together so it 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 almost you know it wasn't a, a fully formed thing it, the baby wasn't born yet it's well in my case in almost every case um I worked with the writer before there was a director or an actor involved. And, you know, the, the, I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the movie that was made, Ghost Story. Mm -hmm. and that's a, a universal picture with Fred Astaire and Melvin Douglas, John Hausman. Uh, and the, the writer was Larry Cohen, who'd written Carrie. And um, 
we worked together and I thought it was a terrific screenplay. And we together chose John Irvin, who just made Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the BBC, uh, to direct it. And um, that was more typical than what you're describing. And now when the director came in, he had some suggestions, but they were not inconsistent with what the screenplay said. We were never in conflict about it. Got it. So, so let's, let's shift gears. We'll, you know, kind of move back up to Seattle. Um, you're starting. So your character, you know, uh, Corey Logan, like this, this character preceded your move or, you know, this is something that you had in your mind and she kind of, travels with you or are were you already familiar because you know seattle features pretty prominently in the series no this was uh after i moved and i decided i was going to write a screen and a woman that i knew um who summers and you know summer's pretty long uh fished up in alaska and that's very dangerous work because um it's, it pays very well, but you know it's it's rough work. It's long hours. The days go on forever, and you know this treacherous water. But I was very interested in this woman who was just so at home in the wilderness, and and I sort of wanted to write a story about a woman who was. And this is not based on her, but this is the woman I was interested in, uh, who was very able, in you know on the water, in the street, but not very self-aware. And um, she gets framed and uh, in order to get her son back, who's in foster uh, care because she's been in jail, uh, she has to have a psychiatrist uh, evaluate her. And uh, the psychiatrist doesn't quite get it right at first and they don't hit it off. And then she gets in danger again through no fault of her own. And she has to run away. And the psychiatrist realizes he's made a mistake and he goes after her and he finds her. And it's, it's eventually their love story. And it's about a psychiatrist who is very self-aware, but not very able in the world. You know, he sideswipes cars, you know, he's got his driver's license taken away. And, you know, um, but I think it's a wonderful relationship. And they are together over three books. And the things that they can do together are way more than any of them could ever do apart. And that's really the thrill of writing these stories. And, um, I am not, I think I, I went far afield from your question, but that, that's, um, the answer is that Corey developed from Bainbridge Island, which are where I lived outside of Seattle, and uh, was the first book, excuse me, it was first a screenplay, and then later I turned the screenplay into a book. And, yeah, so I, you know, you always hear, or you write about things that you know, you know, you've got this this therapist um, who features so prominently, you know, as part of the, 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 the couple, you know, how much, how much is therapy, you know, informed by kind of your own experience in that, in that realm where it's. Yeah, no, I'm not uh, hesitant about, uh, and I often talk about, I mean, I was, uh, I spent a, a long time in therapy by choice uh, and learned a huge amount of it from that. Um, and that certainly plays a role in what I write, but that's not the genesis of, I mean, that's just part of understanding how you write complicated characters, because that's one of the things you really explore in therapy is, you know, psychological complexity. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's you know, it's a, a three hundred. When you look at a human being, it, it clearly not a. Uh, these characters are not 
perfect. They're not all one thing or another. I mean, it's, it's, um, they make lots of mistakes. I think there's something very refreshing about them. You know, you can almost, you can see her, it gives you a little bit more permission as you read them to, to, to be, to feel a little better about yourself in some way as you fumble around. Um, and, you know, I've, I've definitely, you know, certainly in the, in the first of the trilogy gotten to you know, certainly get a sense of that. I mean, it's almost, not a married couple, but there is that couple aspect where, you know, they divide up their, not intentionally, but divide up their, their, uh, th there is a synergy there, I guess, where, where I'm going with it. It's, it's nice to see them actually be able to tackle some, some things that they couldn't do themselves, um, be able to almost leverage the other person. But um, let's talk, I want to talk about the, um, th there's a, a kind of a, to shift it back a little bit into more, um, about home and I've had this idea kind of tying home hunting with the fiction that you're writing. I've always felt like when people are looking for homes or follow me here, that there's a bit of a hero's journey that is involved in the process of finding a place to live. And I'm wondering if you can touch on your own experiences as you've gone from town, you know, from city to city looking for your own places to live. Um, if you found any ties to the process of finding home yourself to the process that people go through, because, you know, you're writing about couples and they're effectively going through an adventure together and, uh, you know, potentially, you know, married couples trying to find somewhere to live. I wonder if you could speak to that. Not sure I understand the question. Um, tell me a little bit more about what you're asking. Sure. So when people are going through the books that you're writing, the book, you know, let's just say the Corey Logan trilogy, and they're going through a particular uh, phase of this. And, you know, there's usually this arc where people are learning about themselves through the process. I mean, just to get a little bit, to step back from a 30,000 square foot view as, and I'm where I'm going is that as people are looking, let's say you're looking for a home in that particular town and you're trying to figure out what it is that you're looking for, what's going to satisfy you, what's going to help you grow. Um, what's going to, what's going to work for you at that time of your life. My question is, have you ever, have you felt any parallel in your own, searches for home to the process of, as you think about the, what these characters go through, have you ever, where fiction and real life sort of coincide? Does that make any more sense? Well, that's a real estate person's question. I got to tell yeah. you. That. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a leading, question. it's definitely a leading question, Bert, you know, but <laughs> you take it for what you like. Um, in some ways, but you know, for me, moving and finding a home generally comes much after the books. You know, it's not something that informs the books so much as is a result of, you know, for example, moving to New York in part comes from successfully publishing the first book and you know i didn't when i moved to new york i didn't begin writing about new york i was still writing about seattle or about yellowstone park um but i was able to um somehow see myself living in New York and writing about the things I wanted to write about. Got it. So in a sense, the, for you then, if we're, it was as the, the home search really was fulfilling on something that you had realized, okay, this is the next step for me. That's right. And so it was, it was much clearer 
um, that the the home was actually, and I've said this too to, to folks, that home was the tangible expression of where you were at that moment. And that it wasn't that, it, that you, were, you needed to go through a learning process to figure out what you wanted. You were much clearer in, in what you needed at that time. Like the, it was pretty, okay, this, this is where I'm in my life. This is what I need right now. I think that's right. I mean, I think if you look at my uh, trajectory, when I first came to Seattle, I didn't know that I could succeed as a writer. It took me a long time to get my first book published. Um, and, you know, that's a, you know, I was old enough, so I was able to uh, manage that. But that's hard. You know, you're getting a lot of rejections. You're getting a lot of, you know, no response and I never questioned that I wanted to live on Bainbridge Island and then later in Seattle because that's where I wanted my kids to grow up I mean that was you know really what was driving that um, when the books finally got published and um, I will tell you a funny story my publisher at first couldn't understand how I could write so fast and he didn't understand that a lot of these books were already written <laughs> uh, and the move from Seattle to New York so anyway, let, me, let me just go back I mean, so I didn't know when I was in Seattle or when I was on Bainbridge, exactly what the meaning of where I was living was. It was not related to uh, what I was writing. It was really helped me decide what to write about because it's what I was learning about and I was interested in it. The move to New York was after I had really decided I wanted to have a serious life as a writer. And I felt like New York offered all sorts of other things um, which is not so much as writing about New York, but New York culture and life would stimulate my writing. And that, in fact, happened. And I, did, I took courses like at the, at, the, at the Y. They were very helpful, you know, with very uh, talented people. Got it. So in, in, you'd also, there are some pit stops in different parts of your life, I think, uh, late sixties, you were in, in Paris, things like yeah. that. So it wasn't, how did, how did you, um, did Paris fulfill the same kind of, uh, or scratch the same itch for you in terms of being a, a Mecca for creatives or, um, how well, did you, I was, I was 19 years old and then 20 when I went. Um, and Stimulated, and I met a lot of you know. And I worked at the Museum of Modern Art there. I volunteered at the Museum of Modern Art, and Paris was very stimulating at that time. And if you remember, you're probably too young to remember that. But in 1968, there was this big uprising in Paris, and uh, you know it corresponded to what was going on in the 60s in the United States. Only it went much further. I mean, it was almost a revolution, and. Uh, I came right after that. So, I mean, it was really a very exciting place to be. And it still influences my writing. I mean, it's still, uh, I find myself writing. I've just written a book. The one I'm writing right now has a section in Paris because of my time there. And, and are you finding, you said that you were finding, um, you're writing writing about something that you're curious and, and really excited about in the moment. Um, it, are you finding, okay, I want to learn about this, so I'm going to travel there and learn about it? Is is that what's where your head is now? Like, I think you had mentioned you were looking at um, some writing that's going to be taking place in, an, in another uh, another island, uh, I think, not Manhattan, but Cuba, right? Yeah. You know, though definitely, you know, you... The more you do it, the more you want to write about places that you know. And there are a lot of places that I, and New York is one now that I'm writing about more. <laughs> there's a, there's been a whole, uh, some, some of the conversations I listened to, um, 
people are in LA and they said that the bane of their existence is the leaf blowers, you know, that there should be a, you know, like a law against leaf blowing or something, you know, I don't know what caused these people to just show up, but they were called full, full blow. But where were we guys? I was, we were, we were, we were talking about, we were talking about the idea of, whether you're what comes first, you know, whether living in a place and then writing about it or something you're interested in that you want to learn more about, you have an idea, maybe you want to travel to the place and learn about it. I guess it you almost have to learn I, first, right? Learn first, right? Second, but um, until now, I've really been writing about the places that I knew, you know. Uh, and if I didn't know them, I mean, it's like when I did um, Inside Passage, you know, I do all of this stuff up the Inside Passage. Well, I've been up there fishing, you know, so I knew that country. Um, now, I might take another trip to a place that I wanted to refresh my memory about, but it wasn't, you know, a big deal. And that was true of all of the books. Um and then some, you know, in the last one, Minos, which is the third in the in the trilogy, um, there's a lot of Greek stuff in that book. Um, this woman is world, uh, mythical world. And, you know, this was a psychological issue, but it was based on Greece. And I did take a trip to Greece to see the, the Delphi and the Oracle and the things that showed up in the book. Uh, but I took that trip after I wrote about it. And I took a lot of pictures that ended up in the book when it was published. And that was great. But uh, long-winded way of saying, I do feel like if I'm going to do a section in Cuba, for example, where I've never been, I need to hire a consultant to, I mean, I can't go to Cuba right now. And so I've hired a consultant who lives there who's going to help me. So yeah, I really want to get that right. So you need to either do it yourself or find somebody you can pay to do research for you. Got it. And I guess you, if you have a theory of what you know what's going to be true about a place, I guess you could be. You might be a little. You might be wrong if you if you don't. You want to get all your details right, I suppose. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that you. Um, That's one of the things that I would really feel badly about is if I got something wrong about a place. And you can do that if it's a place you don't know anything about. I mean, I guess as a, as a writer, too, I don't know, how, how do you inhabit, you know, how do you put yourself in the mindset of, of a place if you've never physically, you know, if you've not physically been there? You feel like, you know, it, it opens up a door to certain certain words, adjectives, phrases, just the, the entire way of being in a particular place. I think that, you know, I have not faced this until this book because I've never written about places that I haven't been. But now I am. And so a couple of them. Part of this book takes place in Haiti also where I've never been. Um, and um, it's tricky. I mean, I knew a lot of screenwriters who, I mean, Andy Lewis, who wrote Clute, uh, wrote a screenplay for me that he set in Thailand. And I had lived in Thailand, but he hadn't. And he did it all by, you know, magazine, books, and doing research. He's very thorough. And it was fine. I would be nervous about that. Right. This is like the woman who wrote... Um... Sea biscuit, as I understand it, she had a major agoraphobia, you know, some kind of or some kind of fear of being outside, and then managed to write these wonderfully, um, wonderfully researched and vivid books, you know, without without. I didn't having- know that. That's a funny story. Not funny, but it's it's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Bert, what's what's how how far out are you mapping your creative journey here uh you know it's it seems like you've got a 
you know, daily routine of what you're doing on a, on the writing basis, I'm sure. And, you know, how, how far out are you thinking about books? Well, you know, I made a big decision, you know, as part of this whole COVID thing. Um, you know, I was spending a lot of time selling books because I published my last book myself. Um, and I really decided that I liked writing more than selling books. And I really, you know, and I, you know, you also get to be a certain age and you realize that, I mean, I'm still very lucid and I'm able to, you know, do what I want to do in a book. And I don't forget what I wrote in page 10 and do something different with the same people in page 80, you know. Uh, and so long as I can do that, I want to keep writing books. And I think I got a lot more books to write. And that's really my priority. And so this one should be out soon after the new year. And then I'm going to go back and write another one. I don't know what it's going to be. Yet. Excellent. Well, um, thanks so much for taking some time. It's fun to understand, get a little bit of a overview of you and how you've gotten, gotten here. Um, anything else you want to share before we, uh, we land this? Uh, yeah, I, th I would encourage people to, if they want to get to know my, my writing, to, to read two books. The first one is Inside Passage. That's the one that we talked about, which is the first Corey Logan trilogy book. And then the last one I wrote, which is Danger in Plain Sight, which is a Kelly James thriller. And that is the new book that I'm writing is a sequel to that. So that that's a good way to set up the new book. Um, but people should go to my website and it's bertweisbord.com and all the books are there and see if there's something that they like. Great. Bert, thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks for doing it, Scott. Yeah. Take care. Well, that was my interview with Bert Weisbord. You know, you hear it all the time, but people want to say, write about what you know. And this podcast is called Finding Home. So it's really interesting that Bert has always been writing about what he knows. And it's very largely based on where he's lived in his life, whether it's Paris or Seattle or New York. And that's what makes it feel so true. And uh, I just want to say thanks to Bert for taking some time to hang out with me in his busy schedule. Finding Home is also produced by Andrea Pollyut. So thanks, Andrea, for all your hard work. And we will see you again next time. If you like what you hear, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to podcasts. And have a great day. Talk to you later.